Welcome to episode 23 of the Strength Ratio podcast. I'm here with a guest who has uh, flown in from uh, Australia back to the States not too long ago, and despite facing some jet lag, has been so kind enough to come on and talk with us. I'm speaking today with none other than Brett Contreras, known popularly as the glute guy. However, today I want to flesh out as I've just gotten to speaking with Brett for the very first time before pressing the play button. And I'm sure you've heard him talk on many other podcasts about glute training, or if you follow him, you know about his research done and his, his dedications and uh, uh, involvement in the field surrounding glute hypertrophy. But today we're going to flesh out more. Hopefully we're going to start by a topic of personal training and what Brett enjoys most in the field and spend time also talking about some of the more qualitative aspects of the process behind training, the relationships developed behind training, and not as much about glute hypertrophy uh, or uh, the hip thrust. So without further ado, I welcome Brett Contreras. Brett, thank you so much. Yeah, so <clears throat> Brett, I, I wanted to start, and I had run this by uh, by you not long ago, is that it was on your Instagram that you created a 10 reasons to exercise. Number 10 on the list was look and feel better with or without clothes on. And that statement might reflect how many people know you where there might be glutes for aesthetics or seeing the glutes as an aesthetic piece, maybe separate of performance or of health. But numbers one through nine speak very much towards relationships, injury prevention, uh, healthy uh, bodies, healthy minds. And, and I'd love for you to just maybe speak more about your kind of evolution to you are the glute guy now, but what do you enjoy most about what it is that you do? So <laughs> that question has a lot of layers to it. So uh, I'll address parts of that. Um, in this field, we have certain, you know, there's a lot of sectors in the fitness field, a lot of cults. <laughs> uh, there's a, a one group who thinks that training for aesthetics is just purely vain and we need to move past that. But I would argue that it's a, a component of evolution. You know, there's there's natural selection, which is like, you know, survival of the fittest. And then there's sexual selection. And this is, you know, think of the peacock um, with a lot of plumes and like a lot of awesome feathers on its tail or whatever you call it. That, that peacock gets selected <laughs> by the female, you know, who will, who will have sex with that so they can pass on their offspring. So, you know, the, looking good is, an, is a, a component. I mean, I remember being in high school going, you know, hearing all the girls talk about the guys who had the best physiques. And so when I started lifting weights, um, it was, you know, probably the two primary reasons are, one, I hated getting bullied and I wanted to be able to stand up to them. I, I hated it more than any person in the world. I, I remember one guy, I went to a party and he, he was, um, you know, ran in my circle. He wasn't a friend of mine, but he, he said, Contreras, I don't, I don't like the sound of your voice. If, 
if you if you if I hear you talk tonight, I'm going to punch you in the face. Oh, and this wow. guy was like the strongest guy in our school. He was the biggest football player, and I didn't talk for the whole night. But like probably three hours later, someone asked me a question, and I answered them, and he punched me in the jaw. So I thought he broke my jaw, and I remember just my I was just boiling inside, going, "This is so unfair. I wish I could." clobber this guy but i can't i can't even do anything about it because he kicked the crap out of me and uh and that that i hated that stuff i've never bullied anyone but i hate bullies <laughs> and i and i i don't like you know it's unfair so i wanted to be able to stand up for myself and i also you know i have i call it wbs weird body syndrome i, I never had a good physique and i was so so deathly skinny as a as a kid you know, back then, you, you, the Ethiopia was starving back when I was a, a little kid, and everyone would joke that we were Ethiopian. Me and my twin brother were Ethiopian um, children, and uh, and I, it just it, I didn't have confidence. I didn't have I didn't I never even um, you know like when I was younger, I didn't I didn't ask girls to dances. I didn't have a girlfriend. I just didn't have confidence because I thought my physique was so bad. And I knew that physiques were important to the opposite sex. And so when I when I started lifting weights, um, I started developing muscles. I started gaining confidence. It took a while. But um, with glutes, you mentioned glutes. I've heard from so many women as a trainer over the years from women saying, you know, my my uh my boyfriend his upper body looks good but he has chicken legs he doesn't train his legs or he doesn't have nice glutes and he 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 always leaves his boxers on like <laughs> during sex things like that or or like i even have um a friend of mine who his girlfriend told us how he never gets fully naked and i know it's because he's so insecure because he has no glutes at all and skinny legs and I just think I thought about that. And I'm like, that's really sad. It is nice when you have a good physique, when you're confident, when you're, you know, can be stark naked and strut across the floor with, with your spouse, and you hope she's checking you out because you're confident with the way you look. So, um, you know, there's and 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 I can't tell you how many women that I've trained over the years who. You know, and and this only happens because I train groups of women, so they'll they'll be talking to each other, and I'll overhear them. And you know, uh, sometimes you'll hear a woman say, "You know, I'm I wish my my husband was more into me. Um, you know, he he just goes to sleep at night. I could have on sexy lingerie, he wouldn't even notice." And then, you know, four months later, I'll hear the same woman be like, "Oh my God, my husband is so annoying. I had to pretend I was sleeping last night." So. I didn't have to, you know, sleep with him. And I'll say, wait, when you first came here, you were complaining about the opposite. Uh, th this was your dream for this to happen. And, and they'll be like, I know, but it's annoying. He's all over me. Um, and the, you can kind of see the, um, I don't know if I want to say the tables turn, but you'll see these, the relationship improve and which seems shallow, but heck it's the way things are. So you improve your physique, you can improve your confidence, you can improve relationships. It can also go the other way. You can become a vain, shallow, narcissistic 
um, worst person, <laughs> uh, especially nowadays with Instagram and this, the selfie era. But uh, if it goes that route, then <laughs> then that's a problem. But I've seen some. I've seen it in uh, strength training improve so many lives. So what do I enjoy most as a personal trainer? Um, when you get people to that compliment phase and then they become your soldier like when you first start training someone sometimes they're skeptical sometimes they're on the fence you can kind of tell you kind of meet them in the middle with their training methods they they might be used to this and and you know if you if you tell them i want you come in here four times a week training full body they wouldn't they would you know they they they're 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 like skeptical at first and you have to really explain to them why you're doing what you're doing and then once they start getting compliments they don't question anything you give them they're like oh you know whatever this guy's doing is working i'm gonna follow everything he says to a t not just training related but diet and everything else lifestyle everything so when they you always know when when they when they start following your instructions to a t is because they're they're getting compliments from coworkers and and family and friends. Their clothes are fitting better. They're stepping on the scale and seeing results. And so that's what I love is like like one month in. Sometimes it's just a few weeks in. Sometimes it's two months in. But that time where it clicks and you can just see how you know they come in and they're so happy with you. And I would argue that personal trainers have arguably the greatest ability to affect change um, in someone's life over almost any profession. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you can, you, you can give people the gift of physical fitness, the gift of health. Uh, you can take people who are on the, uh, on, uh, on their last leg, ready to die and turn their health around and give them, make them vibrant and, healthy again and and it's just such a good there's such an intrinsic reward that's inherent to to personal training that you 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 can only understand if you've been doing it for a lot of years and i and and at this point i've become immune almost to these because i get them every day i get compliments i get dms on instagram you changed my life i can't thank you enough um but you know when you first start getting that it's that's what, um, you know, it's like, you could gosh, this, I know I, I may not be making the most money I could possibly make, but this is a darn good profession. It's, it's fun. You get to be in the weight room all day and doing what you love and making a living while changing people's lives. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, it's, sorry, sorry, getting that. Die down. But it's that the detail that you have and have had, I think, since you've started publishing YouTube videos that really show uh, an attention to almost all of these aspects, to what you need to do in a hip extension to use the intended muscles to their best effect, perhaps for aesthetic reasons, uh, perhaps from an injury prevention reason, but there's been... A, a lot of concerted effort uh, in explaining the details well. And I remember you shared a post a while ago how 
details matter. And we have athletes across the globe for whom we're not there to see in person uh, with them training on a one-on-one basis every day. But uh, even more so to have details in that program if we're not there to answer on the spot. And have you found that since the beginning, uh, because there's uh, so many different uh, balls to juggle, or we've described it as like a, a, a potion spell that you stir between exercise selection and the periodized plan that you whip together for someone's uh, ultimate goal, that you've always focused on or have cared about the nuance and the details? Because when people look on your YouTube, they're going to see just about every exercise that exercises for the shoulders, not just the glutes, but the the legs and the back, etc. And you seem to find a way to fit this all together. So if you can maybe talk more about the details of biomechanics and the details of periodization, what does that all mean to you? And why is that important to you? If I'm interpreting this right, just from an outsider who's been following along on social media and on YouTube. Well, there's the the there's the physiology, there's the biomechanics, and then there's the psychology. That's the missing link, in my opinion. So you can design, you know, you can study periodization and strength training science. You can learn all there is about anatomy and physiology and biomechanics and physics, and and you can still not be that good of a personal trainer if you don't understand the psychology of the psychological side. You're, we're dealing with humans and and the words you say matter the, the 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 training needs to you need buy-in from the client and so the biomechanics always came easy to me and it's funny because i my gym now uh, glute lab here in san diego i watch my two trainers with awe they're and and it makes me realize i think i'm too old i need to i need to taper away from i'm still a very good personal trainer but they have all this energy. They demonstrate every exercise. They're, they, you know, I'll be, I'll be sitting at my little makeshift desk working away on things, and I hear them explaining, and it cracks me up. I'll hear them explaining post-activation potentiation to a client. I'm like, really? They're going there with this, with this client? And I have got, I'm tired. I've been doing this for 21 years. I'm exhausted. I, I I don't always demonstrate exercise. Sometimes an exercise or sometimes a client will be like, you know, wait, which way do I sit on this thing? And I'm like, just get, just lay face down and I'll position you. And because I'm, I've just, I don't have the patience anymore. I'm, I'm, and that, that was fun. I was talking to my friend Brad Schoenfeld the other day and he's like, that, he's like, oh my God, I got to that same exact stage. And that's when I sold my personal training studio. And he's like, I remember once I sold it, I was just so elated. I was, it was like a weight got lifted off me because I got to that point too, where he was ready to move into full-time academia and research. And, and, uh, but I'm, I'm still a good personal trainer. Just not, uh, I, I have lost a little bit of steam. I'm slowing down a little bit in my, as I, you know, I'm 41 years old, but the, the the details matter. You need to care about everything. You need to maximize your understanding of of the science, but you also have to have you know interpersonal and communication skills. Because, like, I remember my last training studio. 
it cracked me up. I, I had this younger trainer who was such a good trainer. He was amazing. But I'd hear him talking to some of the women because, you know, back then at lifts at my gym in Scottsdale, the most clients I ever had was 55 clients. And I think like four were male. So it was like 51 women and four men. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and he'd be like, oh, my God, you're, we're going to get you so jacked. You're, <laughs> looking, you're looking swole. And, uh, so I remember making a list, like things to say to men, things to say to women. Um, you know, in like on the men, like jacked and swole and yoked, sh- you know, shredded and um, huge and all these things. And on the for the women, I was like lean, toned, defined, you know, sculpted, uh, things like that. Firm. Um, I remember the, like just saying like you know some of our women we trained some hardcore women who would freaking love to be called yoked and jacked and swole, but. For the most part, you you want to. I mean, think about what market, marketers use these terms for good reason. Yeah. Uh, what what women when they when women def- describe what they want, they want better body composition. Less they want to lose fat and gain muscular shape. They want hypertrophy and fat loss, and they don't know it. They're they don't. But th- that scares them if you t- you know talk about muscle growth because they're thinking all I need to do is lose fat, lose size. But yeah, they need they they need three D shape. But again, in the beginning, you err on the side of caution and you use terms that you know that psych- you know psychologically that they'll hear these words and they'll like it. When they become your soldier, when they get to the compliment phase, you can say anything you want, and they they just know <laughs> whatever this guy is doing is making me look and feel better so i'm going to do what he says but um but not just not just the psychological aspect of the the words you use like that to tell them how they're going to respond and to motivate them um and you yeah you, you need to understand what their goals are so you know how to motivate them so you know what how to pitch how to pitch uh the, the program and the the and the, uh, and and you also need to understand you know, you also need to like learn about what they like about training, what things they enjoy, what things they want that they they perceive that are necessary to for them to see their results and you 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 meet them in the middle you know maybe you don't like maybe you don't like prescribing a lot of ab work because you know the best my abs ever looked was when I got down to two hundred and twenty four pounds and just got the lightest and leanest um you know, everyone's got abs. You just got to lay a lot of people have a layer of fat hiding it. And you, you lose the fat, you've got abs. Voila, they're there. You don't have to build the muscle. So, you, you know, spot reduction is a myth, but still, a lot of clients, when you give them some ab exercise, they love it. They like feeling the burn in that midsection because they think it's going to make their abs look better. And you may know that it doesn't, but it doesn't, it's not a big deal to throw in two minutes of ab work at the end of the workout, you know, or three minutes of like do a, you know, one set of something, a linear ab exercise, whether it's dynamic or, or, uh, or, or, um, isometric, like a plank or a crunch or a sit up or a hang leg raise or whatever. And then something lateral, like a side plank or something rotary, like a paloff press or, or whatever. It, you can give them like two sets of each, that are, you know, and the sets last 30 seconds long or something and it ends up being two minutes of ab work, it doesn't, 
interfere with any of your training. It doesn't interfere with what you're trying to do, and it can only help because they enjoy the program more. They're, they're, they have more buy-in, and that's what you want. You don't want them – you want them feeling like they have the perfect program. You want them pumped to show up at the gym, so you meet them in the middle. I've, I've met trainers that are like, oh, you won't see any curls being done at my gym. I, I'm into functional training, and it's like, you're an idiot. Number yeah, one yeah. – <laughs> what if you're training a, a guy who wants bigger arms? You're not going to give him any direct bicep work? Come on. And number two, they are functional. Like when you carry stuff around, you know, I, I, you carry furniture around and carry everything. A lot of times your arms are bent. If you're strong at curls, that transfers over. That's more specific than a, than a chin-up. Um, and, and number three, that's your – goals you're placing on the client because most of the clients have physique and aesthetics goals and it's your job to help them reach their goals not to impose your method of training on them if it doesn't jive with their goals so um, that stuff annoys me with um, certain trainers and certain subsections of the fitness industry oh yeah very much so and we advocate for a current model in which athletes uh, are using uh, both uh, fitness characteristics that are uh, improving endurance and strength, oftentimes simultaneously, or at least having a healthy dose of both. But if someone says they want to go uh, and veer this way, well, we're going to go with them. There's there's uh, a room for it all. Um, I feel like if you don't stick your hat on one uh, guru mindset or one train of thought, then you just kind of go where the client goes, you go where the literature goes, and you go with what your experience tells you over time. And uh, the, you know the way that we have been able, fortunate enough in, in creating buy-in is that while we do work with people who come to us healthy looking for improved performance, a lot of people come to us because we've had success in using exercise as a form of medicine to resolve chronic pains. Um, we just do it in a way that makes sense and involves uh, sound scientific principles of strength training that I think are becoming uh, more and more popularized. But that when we have someone begin with us, there is this um, dishonesty and there is this, uh, you know, I, I am here to help you. I am not here to impose what I want to see in you. And I think with that, like you said, semantics really do matter. Um, do you find, and speaking more along this psychological route, because if someone had told me before I got started in this field, the level to which I would wear many hats and seemingly play that of a life coach or of a, um, like a mindset coach, or I don't want to say therapist, but you do wear these many hats. Uh, when you either work with new trainers or educate others, do you have a particular stance in how far you take that um, role of personal trainer either in or out of the gym, meaning how much might one get involved with a trainee's life if because this is all tied together with our lives and we care about exercise and our appearance and feeling good, that inevitably comes up? So that's a great question. So, um, but I like what you said about uh, number one, wearing many hats. Number two, um, like I always say, be your own guru. A lot of uh, people in our field, they get so, 
and people are like that with me and I kind of like it. Don't get me wrong. It's nice to have this, uh, you know, this complete adoration and, and respect from people where they take your word as gospel. But in all my seminars, I like to start out by saying, I guarantee you I'm wrong about 10% of what I'm going to teach you today. I'm wrong. It's like, it's uh, you see, not my, you, oh, sorry, not to, not to interrupt. Did you see, um, I, I don't, I don't think it was Brad's image. I, it might've been Beardsley's image about what we know and what we think we know and what we don't. Yeah, it was Chris Beardsley. It was great. Uh, he's, <laughs> he, he puts out the best information, but, um, it's, it's, we do, we don't know, uh, you know, we're wrong about 10, 10 <laughs> even if you're a very scientific, we're wrong. We don't understand all there is to know about hypertrophy right now. There are some big missing pieces, right? Some, there's some good controversies right now with, in the field about hypertrophy, about strength, about periodization, about a lot of things. And we don't know all the answers. So you just, you got to develop your system and, and understand how to justify it. And well, this is why I do what I do, but I'm subject to change as uh, it's all subject to change as we learn more. I'll flow with what the research has to say, but, and sometimes the research is can't quite capture what we do in the gym um, because you've got to control certain variables and, you know, only measure one thing versus another. And, um, but uh, uh, I, I do like to teach people to be, 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 skeptical but be open-minded um you should be skeptical of everyone including everything i say that's what drives you knowledge and and uh you know it, it helps you reach new new heights in in your quest and in, in, in your quest for for uh to become an expert to be to be the best you can be be skeptical but be open-minded and so you should never just have these idols that you take everything they say as gospel. Um, I know in certain fields like nutrition, my friend Alan Aragon, my God, I just, I, I do idolize him. And I, I, just, I, I, every time I've ever questioned him, he comes up with the best answer. And I'm like, man, he is so smart. But I don't just agree with him. Just, you know, I, if I, if I'm, I'm skeptical of some things he says, and I'll go and do the research myself. And he, Almost always, I'm like, okay, <laughs> I I, uh, I agree with him once I've delved into it. But a couple on a couple things, I think he's, you know, he's a little too skeptical of certain things, or he's a little too, um, you know, on a on a couple of issues, <laughs> minor little issues. But um, so I know what it's like because you have to be. There's there's a lot of um in in this field. You've you're never going to be the the smartest guy in every little component to to personal training you're you know you're most people could never be as smart as me about glutes they could never be as smart as brad schoenfeld about hypertrophy they could never be as smart as alan aragon about nutrition sciences and you know, you, know you mentioned chris beardsley his knowledge of sports science is second to none and so you have to be well-rounded as a personal trainer and so there are, you know, you do have to have go-to people who you trust because I can't study all the physio. I like studying the biomechanics. I like studying glutes. I don't like the physiology as much. You know, I don't, I had to memorize the Krebs cycle once upon a time. I forget it. I don't forget biomechanical stuff. It sticks because I'm so passionate about it. 
So you have to have experts who you follow and who you just kind of trust. But ultimately, the goal over time is to become your own guru, become your own expert, and don't just rely on others. Don't just parrot everything you hear everyone else say. In the beginning, right, you're going to have to do that a little. You have to. I always tell people when I do my seminars, I'm like, okay, pay attention to how I teach the deadlift because it's so effective. And my way is probably better than your way right now. But over time, you can create your own way. But just start out <laughs> teaching it this way, and then you'll mold it over time and, and have your own methods. But chances are I've spent a lot more time honing my system than you have just right off the bat. Um, but over time, you will, that's what I did. I remember you know, my, my training methods were so influenced by guys like Dave Tate and Louis Simmons and, and Jim Wendler and um, Joe DeFranco and, uh, you know, a lot of these guys. I just loved the way they designed programs. I love the way they – I love the exercises they used. But now look at how different my system is from theirs mm-hmm. with all the glute exercises I've come up with and with all the – with the, the glute niche. Yes, I still, you know, use so much of the equipment and – and I've, you know, I've got, I remember I've got my prowler, I've got my reverse hyper, I've got my specialty barbells, I've got, you know, the power rack and the platforms and, and the chains and, and the bands and everything. But yeah, and I also use the, the mini bands and loops a lot more. I do the hip thrust. I have, you know, um, specialized glute exercise that we use. And so I've developed my own system, but at first I kind of copied others um, but to address what you asked about how, how involved do you get with the clients, how, um, that's a, that's a tricky one because yes, sometimes you feel like, yes, my job is I'm as a personal trainer, I wear all these hats. I have to be the drill instructor. I've got to be the motivator. I've got to be the counselor. Uh, <laughs> I've got, um, it's, 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 or sorry, drill sergeant, um, that that it's hard to it's hard to not get involved, but sometimes they, they the clients can ramble too much and they don't have an effective training session. Sometimes they can, um, sometimes they you have certain types of clients who do like to talk more in between sets and rest more, and that makes them feel better. And then they have a better they have better adherence because they're going to show up because they they get that ear that, that's being lent to them that they don't get anywhere else. And other people. They need a good training session, and if you talk too much, they per- perceive that it's not an effective training session. So, and sometimes you can get too involved to where you're like, "Man, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have gone and met this person out," you know? Because that's what I like to become friends with all my clients and have. I want to start doing social events here, like all for all the members, like meet here on a Friday night, meet at the Glute Lab, and we live right right on Garnett where there's all these bars, we could just hop on over and have happy hour or get some tacos or something. But I haven't gone there yet because sometimes that can, <laughs> it can bring you all closer. It can also interfere with things. So, um, yeah, I, I, I haven't had a talk with my trainers about that because they, um, they came up in the strength and conditioning world um, for, you know, working as strength coaches for collegiate sports teams and, they have very strict rules. You, you don't yeah. touch, you don't touch clients. You, you're very professional. 
And for me, I'm always hands-on palpating and you know, to, by crossing the line in a lot of ways. But clients never care because they know I'm all about their results. They never, um, you know, but, but my trainers are very uh, utmost professional, like being in terms of being professional. But there is a slippery slope there and you've got to be aware of it. And it sounds like it sounds like different styles if if you're palpating and they're not, but you're doing it for a specific professional reason. There's a context for it, and I think that's where uh, that individual level of training uh, that includes that which is psychological uh, and interpersonal seems to be the missing piece. Um, I look back 10 years ago, there wasn't nearly as much hypertrophy literature. There wasn't as much, at least available on social media. And the whole, I won't even just start listing off, the whole landscape was different. And there's so much more available now. Granted, like you said, there's so much that we have yet to learn. Um, but I do feel like that working with clients one-on-one, that which is involving more of the psychological or um, psychosocial it is part that's left out. Um, so how would you, and this is not like, a, if you were elected uh, as the board of uh, personal trainers, how would you enact this? But what I think what I'm trying to say is, how do you think trainers ought to go about educating themselves in these more qualitative matters? So it's funny you, you mentioned with hypertrophy research, because um, I was talking to Brad Schoenfeld the other day, and we were giving ourselves a pat on the back because uh, well, I was telling Brad, you know, the reason Brad and I became best buddies, uh, <laughs> he published his his 2010 classic paper on muscle, the mechanisms of muscle hypertrophy and their applications to resistance training. And I, I remember reading it right when it came out. I, I read it twice and I was like, oh my God, I'm so happy this review came out. It kind of summarizes all the hypertrophy research. And it's funny, you look at things because Brad's like that. If, if I never wrote that paper, he and I would have never become friends. And uh, so it's the, the, these things, these pivotal things in your life that, that change your life. But the, then, then I interviewed him for T Nation and I dubbed him the hypertrophy specialist quickly because I had an, a large online following. He became known as the muscle hypertrophy expert in the, in the number one expert in the world, which I would argue that he is. Um, there's people who study certain aspects of it more than he does, but in turn, he puts out, he publishes more papers than anyone. And they're very practical. There are a lot of training studies and things that are much needed. Um, he might not count muscle fibers and things like that, but and do biopsies, but he's doing very important. The, the, the training studies are very arduous and, and frustrating. <laughs> Those are arguably more needed in the field um, than the acute mechanistic stuff. But we were talking and he, we were, you know, he's like, he's like saying how he's very proud that there is so much more research now on hypertrophy than there was he is he has almost single-handedly influenced the 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 research world and you can steer what's being studied and there's so many more professors that are interested in hypertrophy research because of brad 
And it's interesting because he collaborates with numerous professors around the world now. And that's how he has so many publications. He's got all these contacts in Brazil and Europe and places that will ask him to contribute to the, their studies. They want to make sure it's designed properly and carried out properly and interpreted properly. So he helps out with that. And so, um, and for me, I look at the online um, training world and there was an anti-hypertrophy sentiment for a while. Oh, yeah. on, especially on T-Nation, it was like, you know, like Eric Cressy wrote an article about like how the Smith machine is the stupidest thing in the world. And then Chad Waterbury wrote something about like the anti-hypertrophy bodybuilding program. And, um, and I think there needed to be, there needed to be some balance because back then like hypertrophy was like the, the only things popular were muscle magazines. So when I stumbled upon T nation and I start reading all this work by the guys back then, like Ian King and, um, Charles Poliquin and um, uh, John Davies, I think his name was, and Alan Cosgrove and and Cressy and Waterbury and Christian Thibodeau and all uh, all these guys. Uh, um, I was it, it was it was life changing for me because all I ever knew was was the muscle mags, and so uh, I, it was. Uh, oh, I, I never all I knew was high volume body part split training. I didn't know there's this, these other, that you can do total body training and lower upper splits and training for strength and training for function. And, but it, it didn't need to go. So it didn't need to bash bodybuilding. It didn't need to go there. Uh, but it was fun and it was funny at the time and popular it was in, but that's what creates the cults. It's like, yeah, bodybuilders are just these unfunctional or dysfunctional, uh, uh, pack packs of muscle packs of un dysfunctional muscle that and they're not it's silly um to to think that way and then if uh, I, in, but anyway i'm sorry um, if i can just make a point about that uh, and having made those statements before about the smith machine and about bodybuilders you know i i did a workout last week i used the smith machine for hip thrusts i've used it for bent rows. And then in that same session, I, I used it, I used the seated adduction machine. Like I, I think in, in, when I was in college, I would never have dreamed of that just because there wasn't this, uh, willingness to communicate and experiment and to, to try new things, you know, within the confines, as you mentioned of kind of what we know, but still not being afraid to explore, uh, out into that world. And, and kind of with that, I found, I had this realization that, bodybuilders are, are amazing technicians. Uh, we had, uh, um, Alex Viata on the show not long ago and he was talking about, he's like, have a bodybuilder contractor, Terry's major, and they'll somehow find a way to do it. Like their, their, uh, ability to hone in on technique is tremendous. And, and just to kind of provide more context for how quickly this has all happened, our science consultant, who was my former graduate student or graduate professor when I was in school, he said that his work his degree is in um, human movement and, and sports performance that and he's done uh, some uh, hypertrophy research he didn't think the effects of his research would last or, or at least uh, reveal themselves in his lifetime and that was six years ago 
And within that time, the landscape has completely changed, it seems. Uh, so it's amazing how, how quickly that has happened. Um, but then, Brett, uh, and, and any follow-up thoughts you want to finish there, um, but then if you want to maybe continue with where, where you think you would maybe uh, advocate or how you would advocate for uh, creating, or maybe you can't create better trainers, they just have to have that natural interpersonal uh, ability. But how do you create uh, trainers who are better on that side of things if they don't have as much access to the interpersonal relationships and the communication skills as they do, say, something like hypertrophy? So, um, God, it's funny. You know, we we have our glute squad twice a week, and we prescribe Smith Machine RDLs. Um, and we have a little angled, an angled Smith machine. And I never thought I would give deadlifts off a Smith machine. But the ladies loved it and it worked well. So, um, it, it's just silly. If you do lunges off the Smith machine, they work very well. And you'd have coaches go, Ooh, that's not functional. And it's that, that's the, probably the number one study I want to carry out. So, uh, I want to do like, like a, a well-designed machine a training program versus a free weight, like especially plate loaded machines, like a lever squat and lever deadlift. And you could use the Smith machine as well. It's like, if you would not see much differences in terms of performance or physique results. And you tried some of that yourself. You, you, you've already explored some of that, haven't you? Yeah. I did the machine only experiment for whatever, however long it was. And I, I noticed uh, I, my squat went up, my deadlift went down, and my hip thrust went down. I just used mainly the Smith machine and and like hammer, like the hammer strength shrug machine for deadlifts. But my squat did go up because hell, I could make my squat feel just like a normal squat without like by placing my feet right on you know uh, 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 my my feet position properly, where I'm not pushing back against the Smith machine and it makes you stay upright and use your quads a lot. So, yeah, I I know that they can be they can transfer to strength, but also for performance. They're you know a barbell squat versus a Smith machine squat. Neither are very specific to jumping or sprinting or cutting. So you'll you'll probably get similar outcomes. Um, it would, but it would just be a way to show like maybe if the barbell training pro free weights were superior. It's not like it would be like they they gained, you know, five centimeters on their vertical jump and shaved 0.2 seconds off their 40 time, and then the, the, the machine group saw no changes at all. Yes, of course, if you're going to compare squats to leg extensions and deadlifts to leg curls, like a, a, a compound to a single joint, of course, free weights are superior, but a good trainer would use everything at their disposal. Of course, we're going to gravitate towards things we can afford. You know, yeah. if you just have a, a squat stands or a, a power rack and a bench and a good barbell with plates and collars, you can do. You can get eighty-five percent of the results that you that you could get at the most expensive gym in the world. And I think people but, don't recognize um, how statistical significance might present itself in the real world if. Well, I would argue that, and this is an epiphany I had, like, okay, so cool. Studies report averages. Yeah. I mean, I do, I do these seminars with, I had 
200 people at a seminar the other the other uh, week. One of our athletes was there. She she loved it. Oh, nice. <laughs> but um, you know, I have like like I'll have uh, I have them raise their hand, and I say, "This is how I know who really trains people, like the experts out there." When they make a black and white statement, I just know that they're full of crap. They don't really train people because you would never make these statements if you actually worked with people. And I hear high, high, high level guys in the industry make the stupidest claims. Like this is how you squat. You know, you do narrow stance, feet straight ahead, or like feet, feet need to point straight ahead, or you need to go ass to grass. If you're not going way below parallel, then you're doing it wrong. And it's like, these guys don't really work with people. If they did, they'd never say those stupid comments. And, um, Cause you know, I'll, so I'll have, I'll have a, uh, like I'll have like 200 people performing different types of glute bridges and squats and things like that. And I'll say, raise your hand. If you feel it more doing it this way, raise your hand. And I'll, and I, I can predict the percentages to a T I'll say, my guess is that 75% of people will raise their hand, my, you know, and then my guess is there'll be 10 people in the room who feel it more this way. Some people, and it's a lot due to your hip anatomy, um, you know, the, the size and shape of your, the heads of your femurs and your acetabulum and, 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 and also the, your anthropometry, the your ratio of bony segment lengths. And uh, it, it, we have to do things differently. We, there's no, so, so cool. This research paper says that, you know, Wide stance squats activate more glutes than narrow stance squats. Okay, number one, does that mean greater hypertrophy? Because then maybe the narrow stance went deeper. Was depth controlled for? Number two, cool, you're working with a client, and they go wide and it hurts their hips. So what are you going to do? Like you, we're working with case studies. We're working with N equals one. And so it's cool to know what the research says, but at the end of the day, you have to tailor things to them. And you, you, you can't, you have to know the limitations of the research. You have to know, and that's what's cool when you actually conduct research and you compile the stats and you can see, all right, here's the 10 subjects. But, you know, um, when Brad and I did our first EMG study together, it was looking at the effect of, um, of hand position on rear delta activity. And we looked at, um, reverse pec deck with the, a neutral grip or a pronated grip and um, and you know yes on average um, on average people saw better results with a neutral grip instead of a like a palms facing each other grip c compared to a palms facing down grip if I remember it correctly but there were subjects who saw the opposite so it's like if you had these two guys and you prescribe them what the averages were, they would be shortchanged. And so, uh, and this is when you, when you look at research, you, in the, the, the report, the, in the, the, uh, all the subject results. So you can look at the individual differences. It's really eye opening, And that's where you can go, man, for this guy, this intervention didn't work at all, but for this guy, it worked amazing. So, uh, it, it lets you really get a good grip on, working with individuals, you know, the averages don't always apply. The research typically tells you what, what, what the average, what, what the average is, but that doesn't mean 
that your client is average or that you're average. So, um, but uh, your question as to um, what, how, how to get trainers to be more educated about the science, um, because it's hard. You're, and now I'm doing it now, now that I have a gym again, I'm in here all day long and you're tired at the end of the day, you don't always have time to read studies. So like the NSCA does a good job. But the NSCA, um, who you mentioned, I'm run, I'm currently running for the board of directors. They have their journals. You know, they have their Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. They have their Strength and Conditioning Journal. They also have the Personal Training um, Journal. And you know, I was the editor-in-chief of that for a couple of years, the, the Personal Trainer Quarterly. Um, they have one for tactical um, it's like tactical strength coach, I think. And so um, they have different journals that of different levels of scientific versus practical. And so it's good to kind of, because if you're like a newer personal trainer, just newer to the science of things, you might look at journal of strength and conditioning research and be intimidated, but maybe you look at strength and conditioning journal and that speaks to your language or personal training quarterly. And so, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's just like everything else. When you first think of when you first learned how to squat or deadlift, it probably felt really uncomfortable and, and awkward and unnatural. And then over time it felt better. It's, it's the first time you learn to dance or swing a golf club or anything. It's like that. The same is true for science. You get better with practice. You become a better scientist by doing more science, reading more. Um, and then like, having fellow um, colleagues like help you and make sense of it. Cause it's always nice when you have the, like I'm lucky to be friends with the, the number one experts in the world, like guys like, you know, James Krieger and, and Brad and Alan and, and, you know, uh, Eric Helms and Menno Hanselman's and um, Andrew Vygotsky he was my former intern. He's a genius. Um, Chris Beardsley, uh, Greg Knuckles. Um, God, I know I'm forgetting people. Um, but uh, th these these guys are so smart. So you, when you when you'll read a study, and uh, you know you think you have a good grasp on it, and then you hear their take on it, and it's like, oh man, I missed that. I didn't even notice this aspect of the of the study design or the statistical procedure. So yes, you get better at it, but you don't have to beat yourself up over it. It's like I'm I'm never going to be the best researcher in the world because I'm in the gym so much. <laughs> but I have to be you have to walk tall and know that look, there're only so many hours in the day. I'm you, what you know as a personal trainer is going to be a mixture of the time you spend it's three things. The time you spend training yourself and paying attention and performing experiments on yourself because that's what lifelong training is, you just experimenting over and over. And then also the time you spend training others and experimenting with other people, because you learn real quickly how different everyone is in terms of not just biomechanics, but also physiology and adaptation. And number three, the your time spent studying, you know, reading and watching videos and attending conferences and things like that. So it's those three things. So you really want to do a good job of all three of those areas. So yes, if you spent all your time training yourself, 
you you can get smart, but that's what a lot of the the bro science comes from. It's like this guy got good results doing this, and he's got this amazing physique. So he spouts off that everyone in the world should be doing it this way, and that's not necessarily true. Then you have the t- person who spent all their time training others, but they never had, you know, they they they're never going to maximize their own understanding because they've never performed these exercises or taken the time to get strong at them or or ever they don't you know, how are you going to understand what over overtraining or over, not not necessarily overtraining but overreaching or how are you going to know the difference between functional overreaching and non-functional overreaching if you've never gotten there yourself um uh and and uh and, and then you have the guy who spends all his time reading studies thinks that he can learn about strength and conditioning through reading journal articles instead of spending time in the gym working with people they're never going to quite get it. They, they, they can't possibly understand, you know, and there's one researcher I comes to mind who's the most skeptical guy ever. And it seems, it seems like he's on a crusade to prove everyone wrong about everything we ever thought we knew. And it's like, this guy went straight from college to master's, you know, undergrad to master's degree to PhD and never spent time in the gym training people. So he makes this, stupidest claims that yeah he can defend them with research but any trainer who's who's been who's been in the trenches for any given period of time you you know that you you just know that this person's wrong and it's annoying that we've got to go then provide evidence for to to counter what this guy's saying but anyway it's 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 a it's a it's very hard to to find out like when you're a personal trainer who first starts seeking information it's hard because you don't even know the search terms. Like you don't know how to use PubMed. You don't know how to, that you don't even know like the pump. You want to study the pump. Like that's the researchers call it cell swelling. And so you you might not even know that term or you might want to study, you know, you might want to study something. Like I noticed that if I do a heavy squat before, if I have my athletes do this before they, perform a vertical jump test, they do better. Well, how would you know that that's called post-activation potentiation or whatever? How, you know, you, you, a lot of times you don't know enough about the science to even search the right terms, not just in PubMed, but on Google. And so, yeah, it's just, that's why it takes so long to be good at this. <laughs> it takes so long to really become knowledgeable and gain expertise because there's so much to it. And and but you've got to be working long hours. There's no shortcuts. You can't, you can't, um, you know, like this. The, the, I always laughed at the Timothy Ferris book back in the four-hour work week, and that was so popular. I'm going, oh man, I want to write a book called the 80-hour work week, or the 100-hour work week, because that's what yeah. it's taken me. Now, this book was about making money. Yes, you can make money, you can take shortcuts, but to me, it was never about just making the money. Money's nice, but it was about influencing the world and helping people and spreading my methods. If you want to go that route, then you have to go about things differently. And uh, that's another topic we could possibly hey, talk about. If you don't uh, mind me actually stopping like, you there, Brad, because I, uh, uh, Brad, because I, I do think that I, I kind of want, and, and like I said, I want to be respectful of your time, but that that does lead to one question I want to to end on, but, but, you know, kind of in, in summarizing and, and this has been so insightful for me because I think it highlights what's important and, and just these realizations I've had is that although those 
uh, search phrases might be something I, I didn't even realize that that a new coach or, or, or trainer might not know to even type in the words to figure out what they're seeing in the gym, uh, but that you really have to and you have now available to you these experts in the field who you can follow on your phone. You can follow Knuckles and you can follow yourself and you can follow Brad and you can follow Alan. And then if you take and kind of see where people in the field are going collectively at the convenience of something that you're holding in the palm of your hand, while also, and, and, and tell me if maybe I'm not summarizing this well enough, that when you're working with a client, you know that their performance and their aesthetic and their pain is of their own individualistic experience. You meld the two together to become the best trainer or coach that you can be. Absolutely. But what, what's your specific question? Sorry. Uh, and what I, so in summarizing sorry. that, I just wanted to make sure, cause I, I think I, um, uh, in, in you talking about these researchers, I think it's actually easier now than it could have been for new trainers at, easier now than it ever was in the past. But where I wanted to get to as this last point before I, I let you go, and if ever time allowed, we'd, we'd love to have you back on. But like I said, I want to be respectful of that layover. Um, although I know you have this energy and you have this drive to put in these 100 uh, hour work weeks, these very long work weeks is um, how do trainers who want to develop an online presence, develop um, a, uh, an expanding clientele, uh, how do we make this coaching slash personal training uh, career a sustainable one so that people can be doing this, uh, you know, while they might be tired at the end of the day? How do we make it sustainable for people? Yeah, right. So that's, um, you know, it's funny. Um, I remember talking to uh, my friend Gunnar Peterson. He's a celebrity trainer in LA and he's like, you know, before I went off on my own, I led, I led like the last two gyms that I worked at. I was the leader in, in, in sales or clientele, whatever. But if I remember that correctly and I'm going, yeah, it, it, I'd have no problem believing that he's got the gift of gab. He's, he can, that guy can talk and you just find yourself nodding your head. He can, he knows. So a lot of it is your interpersonal skills. Um, but like word of mouth back in the day at Lyfts, I didn't have, when I had my last studio in Scottsdale, I didn't have an online following. We got all of our clients through word of mouth, but it was crazy. Like I, I remember my, my client Leslie got like 13 wow. referrals for us. So like 13 clients were there because of her. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, that's like luck of the, uh, I remember it was this Malcolm Gladwell book. I can't remember the name of it. Um, but they talked about like the connectors, like this lady was a connector. She, um, she we were lucky to have her cause she went out and spoke the world of us and gained us clients. But yeah, a lot of your, a lot of it comes from word of mouth. But what's interesting is to see the difference between I had a studio 12 years ago and then I have one now. And the, the difference now with glute lab, we've got, uh, I think we probably have 120 members right now. And that's in like, we've only been open like <laughs> six or seven weeks. We've been open two months. And it's funny because my trainers are like, Brett, in another month, we're going to be at capacity. And I'm like, crap, okay, we, good problem to have. We'll raise rates. 
<laughs> raise rates and grandfather the people in, but raise rates. And um, but uh, it's uh, probably we probably have like five of those hundred twenty that 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 came through word of mouth, and all the the rest of the hundred and fifteen or whatever came from knowing who I am on social media. And and that was something I was wondering about. I was like, is my online popularity going to translate to local San Diego? It's like, cool, I've got 350,000 followers on Instagram. Does that mean I can open up a gym in any city and do well? I don't know. I have no clue. How many many followers do I have in this five-mile radius surrounding Glute Lab? You know, um, surrounding 1349 Garnett Avenue, because because really, you're, no matter how big of a but but ironically, we've got some clients from LA yeah. that drive from LA every week. They they do a two hour drive train here and two hour drive back. Um, so it's 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 fascinating just to see the differences. So yes, social media helped me succeed, but it didn't back in the day. I didn't have any social media; it's all word of mouth. So how do you so as a personal trainer? How do you make it sustainable? Um, there's, uh, I could make a list of traits, of characteristics that make you successful as a personal trainer. But uh, uh, like a lot of it's just, you know, how do you teach people how to be, how to, how, their work ethic? How do you teach people good communication skills? How do you, but then knowing the science, that helps. Having the best equipment. Because a lot of people come here because we have equipment that, they don't have in other gyms. They just love using our stuff. Um, but uh, but what I will say is that um, you really have to kind of think what your goal is as a fitness professional. Because a lot of people don't take the time to understand. They just kind of parrot what other people are doing. And it's for me, like, okay, I could probably double my money in the next year. I could double my income and I could just, you know, and I, I, I know exactly what I do. I would just, I'd, I'd stop so many of the things that make me so busy being in the gym. I don't need to be here, but I like being here in the gym and watching the training. And I learn, I learn this way. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing hundreds of people every day and watching them lift and watching my trainers interact with them and I'm interacting with the people too. And I go to seminars and I interact with hundreds more. Every single month I'm working with so many people. That's what gave me my expertise. But it's it's busy work. I could be at home making infographics and videos for Instagram and just doing that and just having and I could charge, I could double what I charge for everything cuz I I've never been the guy who charges quite, you know so much. But uh, uh, I know that money doesn't make you, money and happiness aren't linearly correlated. In fact, there's a U-shaped curve of happiness throughout your lifetime. You seem to be happiest in your teens and like your 70s and 80s. And it, it, the valley is in your like 40, like late 30s and 40s when, when you're, when you realize how hard life is and how, how, uh, you know, you, you're, you have to be independent and there, you got more and more responsibilities you take on. But, um, uh, there's research showing that happiness peaks at like 70,000 a year. And I'm sure it depends on 
Like if you lived in <laughs> South Dakota, 70 grand, you could probably buy a, a mansion. And if you lived in Manhattan or Beverly Hills, 70 grand won't get you much. But, uh, but the, the point of it is, is I remember this book I read when I was like in third grade called, I think it was called the Pearl. And the guy found the biggest pearl ever, you know, I guess it was in an oyster or clam or whatever. And he opened it up and there's the largest pearl in the history of mankind. And this thing's going to be worth like $15 million. And, but he's on an Island and just throughout the book, all these people started coming after him wanting to borrow money and wanting to, and he, and he had to guard it at night. People were trying to steal it. And it got so problematic that at the end of the book, he just took it, threw it back in the ocean. And, um, and that I always remembered that. I mean, hell, I remembered it from being eight years old. But you, it's that Biggie song, Mo, "Mo Money, Mo Problems," and you can get to a point. If if I just gave most people ten million dollars, they wouldn't become happier. They'd sabotage their life, and they'd lose it. You look at a lot of the lottery winners; they lose their money, all of it, and um, it's because it came too easy for them. They don't know. They didn't build it up, and so money does not. Money in the pursuit of money can make you more unhappy because you can work longer hours, and that's what I do a lot. I work too much and don't take the time to smell the, the roses. So you, but if you want to make money, that that's what you're solely interested in. Then you go about things in a particular way. You study marketing, you study how to make money. Um, if your goal is to get be respected amongst your peers then you got to learn the science. You got to be publishing. You got to be putting out good quality information. You got to be speaking at seminars, meeting the people, shaking their hands, having a beer with them, um, looking them, shaking their hands and looking at them eye to eye and let them get a taste of your character and have discussions with them. And um, you got to meet all the right people and make the connections and, and, and always have integrity and put out quality work. If you and so you'd if that was your goal, your main goal, then you you go about things that way. If your main goal is to make an influence on the world, then you have to go about things very differently. You've got to put out a lot of free content. Um, you know, I would argue, I think, at the risk of sounding cocky, I think I've changed the fitness industry <laughs> more than anyone in the world except Greg Glassman. <laughs> say what you want about say what you want about Greg Glassman, but uh, he founded CrossFit and CrossFit is worldwide and it, it, it greatly influenced the way the world trains. And then after Greg Glassman, who else is there? Everyone in the world is doing my methods right now. They're all doing hip thrusts and not just hip thrusts. Um, I, 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 all the variations of the hip thrusts, but also all the different Bridging, thrusting, band bands weren't popular 12, 12 years ago, ten years ago. You know, mini bands and and loops and things. None of that stuff was popular, and now it's become very, very popular. Glute training has totally changed around the world. And I speak around the world, and I go to gyms, and I'm like, um, I see, you know, I see what's going on, and I I always smile, going, God, I have reached, I have a global reach. I get DMs from like Nepal in Pakistan and stuff like that. And I'm going, wow. So I've had to put out a lot of free content and I have a lot of colleagues that are like, Brett, why are you, why do you give so much away for free? You could, should be charging for that, but they'll never know what it's like. They'll never know what it's like to, uh, you know, they don't get the DMS that I get. 
about changing lives. They don't get they don't get to go somewhere and be recognized and and um and have you know and 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 have people you you just you sit in a gym and watch people doing your methods and performing your exercises. The smile that comes to 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 your face when when that happens. And so, if that's your goal, you go about things that way. But a lot of people are like me. I I have all three of those goals. I want to make money. I want to be respected amongst my peers, and I want to influence the world. So I have to blend those three strategies together. And so that that's that's uh, it's hard. You got to work long hours. You got to know the science. You got to be making money you got to be training people you got to be working with people you got to be doing services you can't just research and publish studies all day long because you're you you don't make a lot of money that way unless you're a a research professor but they don't make a ton of money but uh you got to be you know if you want the money you got to have other you have to have multiple revenue streams and have uh you know um you have to have uh, passive income and things like that and then if you want to influence the world, you got to be putting a lot of out a lot of free content for people because a lot of people can't afford it, or it's going to reach a lot more people when it's free. And then finally, if you want to be respected, you got to be going to the conferences and putting out scientific information and having integrity. So that kind of conflicts with the the, the marketing. You know, marketers will say, you know, um, the headlines, the, the the things they say will be very flashy. You can't get away with that if you want to be respected amongst your peers. You can't make these bold claims unless you could back it up. And um, so uh, trainers first need to decide what they want, what their number one goal is. And then you – or if it's a blend of all those goals and that's how you conduct yourself and go about things online or not online because you can make money not not even being online if you're a good trainer just through word of mouth. But – Anyway, I've kind of rambled on and on there about that answer, but I do think it's something that trainers need to think about. Like what, what will make me the happiest? Is it if I can get to six figure income or, or if I'm speaking at all these conferences and, you know, rubbing elbows with the creme de la creme in the field or, or do I want to be helping a lot of people and working with a ton of people and, is that intrinsic reward? Uh, is it is it equal as the extrinsic reward of money, or or do you not care as much about it? So that shapes your your overall strategy. But at the end of the day, learning the science will help you in any of those, and but so will gaining ex, gaining experience. So it's always just this fine line of uh, you have to. Train yourself, you've got to train other people, and you've got to be reading and learning at night. <laughs> or before you go to sleep, be, let it become habits. Or right when you wake up to try to read a study or read something that's going to benefit you, um, you know, that's going to that's gonna make increase your knowledge. And hell, I, I have a lot of things that I read and then I'll try it in the gym or it influences uh, – it, it, it leads me to devise some sort of, you know, hypothesis, and, and then I can then test that out and in the gym on myself and on other people. So it's the way it works. Is and you know, the book in following and the good research, but it's well, that's been tremendous. It is your 
uh, fearlessness around experimentation. And um, I really do think that that's what we've benefited from most. And in turn, that's what our clients have benefited from most, whether it's just from mixing it up from an enjoyment standpoint or realizing that there are other ways. And, uh, you know, in terms of experimentation, and if I have this story correct, it was that simple, curious mindset or willingness to experiment in the first place that created the hip thrust. If I'm not mistaken, I don't know if you ever think about this, you were watching an MMA fight where a, a fighter could not bridge his hips up enough to avoid a pin. And then you went into your garage. I hope I'm getting this right. And in putting the reverse hyper and the GHD together, performed what was basically the first weighted hip thrust with a, a weight belt around your hips. Exactly. And, uh, and that's, you know, that was 12 and a half years ago. Um, it was 2000, it was October 10th, 2009. And it was, uh, watching, uh, Ken Shamrock and, uh, Tito Ortiz fight. And, uh, it, it's funny that, 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 that one, it's like, you think about how strange this is. Cause that, changed my path in life. So one night I'm just sitting there living this life at, on this course and I'm watching a fight and it sparks an idea. I go out into my garage, I try it and I tried it. And I remember feeling I've never felt my glutes work like that in, in an exercise before. And I walked out into the, in, into my front yard and I, I'm not religious and I'm not spiritual. And I looked up into the sky and I went, from this point forward, everything changes. From this point forward in my life, I'm going to spend the rest of my life. Get, I, I literally looked up in the sky. Why? I don't look up in the sky. I don't think there's <laughs> – I looked up in the sky and said, from this point forward, my whole life is going to change. And it has. And that's what I – and I've – for 12 straight years, I used to party a lot more. I used to drink. I used to you know, chase women. And <laughs> I stopped all that. And – got serious, buckled down, got serious in my career and, and became a workhorse and no one can outwork me, you know, uh, cause I'm, I love it. I'm so passionate. I'm so curious. So that, that it's crazy how that happened because I mean, I was going to be a, a, I was opening up a gym. I had just quit teaching to start uh, to pursue a career in fitness, but that changed my whole life. And, but it was that willingness to get it was like late at night. It was like 10 o'clock at night and I was tired. I didn't want to go out into my garage, but I was compelled by curiosity and yeah, so it's just not being lazy and a lot of succeeding is just building up the work. I tell this to my trainers because right now they're working such long hours and they're so annoyed by me because we don't have a scheduling, uh, so we don't have scheduling software right now. So I told them just do it by hand and I didn't realize it's taking like we, we were getting so many DMs, but this is new to me. Like I'm like, it lifts back in the day in Scottsdale. Everyone came in. We didn't have DMs. We didn't have any emails. They just showed up. They showed up to the gym and they scheduled themselves in there. So this is a new thing for me. So I didn't realize they're spending several hours a day trying to answer DMs and schedule people. And, uh, you know, so that's, uh, but anyway, I said, ah, it's good for you guys. And I'm not as sympathetic as I should be. Because I'm not just looking at them as trainers. I'm trying to mold them into 
the leaders that I know they can be. My two trainers, Bryce and Sterner, they're both named Alex. They're badasses. And I know that they'll go on to do great things. And half of succeeding is just building up your work ethic. Because think about it, when you're working, you're not spending. So <laughs> you're, you're not only doing things that'll make you more money, you're also doing things that won't cost you so much money. So, um, and they have that, they've, they've developed those work ethics. And so, yeah, it's, 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 a it's, a it's, it's a lot of people when they're not in a good place, you can look at their life and you go, yeah. And I wrote an, I made an infographic on this the other day and it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. It was like, if you want to succeed in strength and conditioning, do more of the things on the left-hand column and do less of the things on the right-hand column. And I thought it was so funny because I, I read some of the things on the right-hand column were don't drink so much alcohol, don't smoke too much weed, don't gamble, don't – and it was like all these no – one, no one had a problem with the alcohol or the gambling. It was all these pot smokers that were like, weed should not be on there. Weed works. Smoking marijuana is – just fine for me. I'm I'm doing just fine, and I click on their I click on their profile, and it's like they're they have 300 followers and they're following 700, and it's like they think they're successful. Like I don't. I, we have a different. Like I'm talking about having a million followers and changing the world. I'm not yeah. talking about just making ends meet and you know getting, paying your bills. We have a different definition of success. But uh, it, it kind of made me chuckle because, like, I grew up with the biggest potheads. I, I never smoked in college, but my root college roommates were the biggest. I mean, we had bongs in our place, and it was just nonstop uh, smoking, like, five times a day. And so I, I, I was around it all day long. And, uh, you know, when you when you go to smoke, you're trying to – Think about being stoned. You're relaxed. You're chill. You're giggly. You're, you know, I, I, I used to love being around my friends when they were stoned. I would feel stoned. Maybe I had like a contact high or something, but I would feel. I always think of the movie like Dazed and Confused, and like, like, dude, like that's not in a good state of mind when you're trying to learn, or you don't want to be like that when you're answering DMs or you know, like with social media nowadays you can work all day long you can be always be doing stuff you can always be working and so anyway it's it, it was interesting to me to see that because i'm like come on guys like you know if i smoked i would just know that it's yes you can smoke a little bit hell drinking a one drink a day one alcoholic drink a day is heart healthy it's beneficial but drinking i remember watching a james bond movie and like that's when I realized I don't think I, I want to be getting drunk a lot because I, I was watching a James Bond movie years back and I'm like, he's got to save the world. The world is reliant upon him solving something and he's doing shot after shot. And I'm like, why are you doing shot after shot? Like I'd be wasted at that point and I would not be able to save the world. But Bond always does. But I was like frustrated with him like, you have a freaking responsibility right now. Quit doing shots. That's not manly anymore. Like the, our definition, our like definition of manliness changes over the years, and his character needs to evolve. It's not cool to, you know, do just drink drink shot after shot or slap women like back in the Sean Connery days. Like it's a, that's we have a different era now. So 
uh, those things made me think and and really you got to be working long hours but you also have to have good life balance because otherwise you burn out so it's always just this fine line between having fun and enjoying but that's what makes it so much easier if you're kind of doing what you love if you enjoy this field the way i do then it's doing what you love it's not such hard work um you know brett i i, I don't know if you've looked into or have heard the the two words of uh grit and self-control being used in the same sentence or as constructs that are strongly correlated as has been research, uh, researched in psychology. But uh, hopefully in presenting you to our audience and, and whoever else has the pleasure to listen to this and to get to know the man behind the glutes a little bit more, so to speak, is that I'm realizing you have this really great balance between uh, self-control, so what would promote uh, delayed gratification and what's allowed you to really hone in on why you're doing this work and what's allowed you to be the workhorse you are. Uh, and that grit, the passion that you have and the perseverance to keep going. Uh, I, I think you're balancing those remarkably. Uh, so, uh, it's, it's been a, a pleasure, uh, Brett, having you on. I, I have so many more questions. So if ever your time allowed, we'd love to have you back on, but I, I don't want to take any more of your time today. Uh, but thank you uh, so much for, for making this time. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure and nice questions that you asked. You set me up uh, and I would love to come on in the future. Awesome, Brett. Well, I'll talk to you soon and have a, a wonderful day. You too.